Um, we're still in Second Kings eight. We 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 went through the chapter of Second Kings eight uh, last time, and I want to revisit a couple of things before we move on. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure. We we may spend another week going through one of the minor prophets uh, that we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do that. I'm probably going to at least spend a little bit of time in it next week. But if not, then we'll just, you, you know, it may, may not be the whole time. But um, we're quickly approaching this season of judgment where God actually just opens the floodgates of judgment against the northern kingdom for their um, attitude, really, their behavior. They, they really, the king has for a long time now, many kings, has really locked out the people from being able to worship the Lord. They've walked in the ways of the kings before them in wickedness and evil. They haven't followed after the Lord at all. And it's high time judgment come. Judgment has been prophesied long ago. It's been hinted at, then full on prophesied. And then ultimately, now it is finally coming to um, the, the house of Omri, which would be the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And, you know, the southern kingdom is not doing so hot either. So as we look at this, um, Elijah actually announced uh, some time before that there would be judgment on the house of, of Ahab, which is also the northern kingdom, and for their idolatry. And yet here we are some many years after we're not told exactly how many, but it but it's a number of years after that. Here we are, and we've got Ahab's now second son, Joram, in the north, uh, who's sitting on the throne of the kingdom. And that's you know we're we're kind of waiting for that judgment to come. And in the southern kingdom, it's not faring much better because uh, Jehoshaphat is in the south or was in the south and he was doing his best to cooperate with Ahab. So while Ahab was on the throne in the north, Jehoshaphat is in the south. He should be leading in accordance with his great 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 grandfather David, but he's not. He's he's trying to kind of keep the peace between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. For what reason? We don't really know. We could speculate all day probably, but we don't really know. He's sort of trying to keep the peace and make amends and uh, you can imagine, you see some of this, I know I relate this a lot to North and South Korea, but if you look, if you pay attention at all to geopolitics or anything like that of today, uh, you'll see that North and South have this sort of strange relationship where the South should be completely apart from the North because of the wicked, tyrannical government that's in the North. And yet they kind of see themselves as kindred spirits, as brothers, so to speak, and they kind of there's some harmony, there's some seeking of peace there, right, sometimes, and especially right at this very moment. And so it's similar in this, in this era that we're studying right now, is that the North is really wicked and evil, and the South is kind of like, well, yes, you're wicked and evil, but we are brothers, and we kind of want to have this sort of bond of unity. And it, it, what ends up happening really is Jehoshaphat just sort of cooperates with Ahab, he marry, picks up a, a has a marriage agreement and things like this and starts marrying their daughters and things like that. 
And all it does is seek to kind of merge those two together. And so it ends up where, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this tonight, where the South is sort of indistinguishable from the North. And this is going to end up being to the South's disadvantage because God is bringing judgment on the North. So then if the South is indistinguishable from the North, what is he going to do to the South? Well, he's going to bring judgment on them too, you would think. But he does, he warns them, but he, he is a little bit more patient, it seems, with the South because of one key factor in the South the North doesn't really have. And we'll talk about that tonight as well. And it's even so much so their indistinguishableness that you end up with some kings that have very similar names. Like we end up with two Jorams. So you'll see it in your Bible, Joram in the north, Joram in the south, or Jehoram in the north, Jehoram in the south. Sometimes the translations will go Joram and Jehoram. So that way, <laughs> Alan is locked out. Can you go grab the door for him? Uh <laughs> Yeah, in the pouring rain, he's locked up. Um, sorry, I just, I, I'm glad I looked over there and saw him. Um, so where was I? Jo, uh, Joram and Joram. And sometimes the translations will separate them for our sake so that we can keep track of which one's in the north and which one's in the south. And, um, and so I kind of made a note of that and tried to, tried to keep it as Jehoram tonight when we're talking about the king of Judah in these notes. So... Um, just for the sake of confusion. Okay, but even some of their names are indistinguishable from one another. Then, on top of that, whoops, all right. Uh, so we've got Ahaziah, who is the son of Jehoram in Judah, who comes to the, the, the helm, and that was the end of chapter 8. That's where we got to, was Ahaziah was on the throne. And we're going we're gonna to play around with the timeline tonight, so I don't want to get any, anybody confused, but... You have to remember, we're in 841 BC. It's a tumultuous year. And I want to draw your attention to that. Look at the back of your packet. There is a, a timeline of events that are taking place here. And I want you to pay attention to 841. All right. So look over on the left hand column. You'll see where Elisha is. If you go just to the left of him, you have Joram in the north. All right, 852 to 841. When Jehu takes the throne there in the northern kingdom, 841. We haven't gotten to Jehu yet. We've kind of talked about him a little bit, but we hadn't really got to Jehu yet. So just hold on to him for a second. All right, 841. Then go over all the way to the right. Look at 841 in the south. All right, you got Jehoram ends his reign in 841. Then you get Ahaziah. Well, he's not on the throne, but for a minute. And then in 841, we also get Athaliah, who we'll talk about in some weeks from now, who is a, a lady who was on the throne uh, in the southern kingdom. And so you have a, a 841 is a tumultuous year, and we're going to see perhaps some reasons why. There's more that happens in 841 than even just that, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And so we're going to have to kind of work around in that year just to kind of understand some of the events that are taking place um, there. So does that make sense for everybody as far as the times so far? Okay. All right. So let's go into the, the notes um, and just remind us of some of a, a couple of things that are going on. So during the reign of Jehoram, Jehoram, that's in the south, king of Judah, 
All right. During the reign of Jehoram, king of Judah, which just as a reminder, uh, Jehoram is 853 to 841. He's one. He's the first one in Judah that leaves the throne in 841. So during the reign of Jehoram, there's some tumult that takes place. Jehoram, because he is very similar and he is he is kind of played politics with the north. Uh, he has, God has begun kind of warning the southern kingdom about their judgment. And how has that happened? Well, they lose Edom and Libna. Edom is another principality out towards the east. We're going to look at a map in just a second. But Edom is out towards the east. Libna is out towards the west. Both of them are paying tribute to Judah, and in somewhere around 841 or somewhere close to that time, they just decide to stop doing that altogether. And so this is where I think to understand this is part of the judgment that God is bringing on, on the southern kingdom, more like a warning to them. Remember, this is a, a immensely important because David comes in and begins to expand the borders of the kingdom of God and drive out all of Israel's enemies. And he unites the kingdom, and they're all under David and all of this, right? Solomon comes in and even more begins to expand the borders, and everyone is paying tribute to the kingdom of God, and everybody is in service to the king. This is how it's really supposed to be, right? The Gentiles are supposed to bend their knee to the king of the kingdom of God, and in this case, David and Solomon, right? So, after Solomon, because of his wickedness, God says, look, we're going to break it apart. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm just going to tear it apart as judgment to you for your wickedness and not tearing down the high places and worshiping pagan gods and all of these kinds of things, marrying foreign women and all of this. And so their borders begin to also collapse. So instead of the kingdom of God expanding now, it is contracting. They're losing Edom. They're losing Libna. All of these places are going away and refusing to pay tribute. And the worst part about it is the southern kingdom tries to do something about it, and they can't. They fail. And so how do they do that? Well, in response to Edom, and really Libna as well, but in response to Edom's revolt, Judah, and especially Jehoram, gets all of his chariots together. Oh, I, I forgot. Let me pause for just a second what I was going to say. It was really brilliant, just so you know. But let me pause, and I forgot, I've got a map in here that I need to include. Just so, point of reference, Libna over here on the left-hand side, Edom down here in the southeast, okay? Edom, Libna, Edom, Libna, Edom, <laughs> Libna. <laughs> Robert's trying to chase me around. <laughs> All right, so just so geographically you got it laid out. All right, now, go ahead. Shannon's got a question. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You got you to gotta do the microphone. Can you catch? You got to because the people at home are going to kill me. The, the thousands in, watching around the world. Uh, so Libna is like a little North Port and yes. Edom looks like a big state of Alabama. So is that what we're talking about? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So yeah. like a little town. A yeah. Well, well, now keep in mind the entire area of... Uh, the promised land is like about the size of New Jersey. Well, and I understand. If you're not that. talking about size, then yes, you're, you're right. Yeah. But I'm just, yeah. Yeah. We're talking about that whole. Yes. Freedom yes. Okay. Yes. Libna, if, if, so we're going to talk about this in just a second, but Libna is actually going to be acquired by the 
Philistines and Arabia. So the Arabs are going to come in, the Philistines are going to work together, and they're going to try to take that area of Libna. Successfully, actually, they start to incorporate it into their own kingdom. And there's some other things that are going to happen in 841 too that are, that are really bad that Edom gets in trouble for. So uh, it's all kind of part of the plan, so to speak. Um, all right. Uh, so, um, so they decide uh, Edom revolts against paying tribute to Judah. And what, does, uh, what, do, what do they do? Well, they decide we're going to go after them. We're gonna, they don't think they can pay us, can they? Well, so he takes his, Jehoram takes his whole tri- uh, troop of chariots and they all go down to Edom, and they even uh, surprise them by attacking them at night. All right, no infrared, no candle, no real. I mean, candles aren't really going to help you, but no, no flashlights. All right, you got torches. Basically, that's probably about it. And they they take them by night, and they get their tail whooped, and they go back home crying and Edom gains its independence. So uh, you would think that the, the city, the country that was paying tribute to a kingdom is really weak, right? That's why they're paying tribute. Nobody wants to pay tribute, you know, at least not initially. So they're weak, and Judah seems to be strong, and yet... They go in with a large army, probably much larger than Edom, and they get whooped. And they go back home, and Edom gains its independence. This is a big deal. Now, toward the end of his reign, uh, the Lord stirs up, uh, stirred up the anger of the Philistines and the Arabs so that they attacked Jerusalem, and they sacked the palace, and they carried off the royal family with the exception of Ahaziah, he's also called Jehoahaz, who is Jehoram's youngest son. So they come in to Jerusalem, they sack the city, and they take the entire royal family back to Philistia, and they only leave the absolute youngest son of Jehoram behind. His name is Ahaziah. That's how Ahaziah actually takes the throne. Ahaziah, also called Jehoahaz. You're going to see him in 2 Chronicles 21, 16 to 17. Let's read that. Um, And the Lord stirred up anger against Jehoram, the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, also called Ahaziah, his youngest son. Um, And actually, Jehoahaz and Ahaziah look like two completely different names, and it's really not. Uh, Ahaziah is, the first part of, uh, of Ahaziah is actually in Jehoahaz. It just depends on where you put the Lord's name. In Ahaziah, the Lord's name comes at the end of his name, and in Jehoahaz, it comes at the beginning. So it's just the, where you put the Lord's name, and it's the same name. So um, little f- fun fact, all right? Uh, so that way you can maybe remember Ahaziah, Jehoahaz is the same person. Um, so point being, this is a bad year for Jehoram. 
right? <laughs> it's a re- this is a really bad year for Jehoram, and, it, and it's judgment because of th- they're taking part in the wickedness of the northern kingdom. Are they as wicked as the northern kingdom? Well, not really, but but they they kind of are. I mean, they're they're playing in uh, they're in council with the with the northern kingdom, and and they're following them uh, and getting into marriage alliances and all of this kind of thing. So, following all of this, the Lord fulfilled an earlier prophecy that went all the way back to Elijah's day that Jehoram was cursed and would eventually end up with an intestinal disorder. And that is how Jehoram dies with a disorder of the bowels. His stomach rots and he dies. Yeah, pretty gross, right? Um, So, and not only that, but he also died without a whole lot of fanfare. Turns out people didn't care a whole lot about him. Listen to how the Bible depicts this in 2 Chronicles 21, 18 to 21. Or I think I have 18 to 20. Do I have 18 to 20 there? I think I have 18 to 20. Uh, and after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time and at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Um, all right. So Ahaziah, his youngest son, takes the throne and reigns in his place, and uh, you can see even there that this is, this is a, a long couple of years for Ahaziah. Obviously, there's, there's a lot going on in their family over the last so many years of their tenure. Now, why is all that important? We talked about some of that last week, but why is that really important? Because it is here, we think, that we get the first of the writing prophets. All right? Obadiah and Joel come onto the scene. All right, you may be familiar with Obadiah and Joel, but here's my experience in my own life and in most of the people that I talk to in churches, that when we start talking about the minor prophets, it tends to go, we don't know our Obadiahs from our Joels, right? Or our Amoses for that matter. Um, Or Jonah, we got that one down. Jonah, I think most of us have that one down. But but your Joels and your Amoses and your Obadiahs, we don't know those from first and second hesitations and, you know, first and second opinions and all those. Um, so let's, part of this, we want to kind of put those writing prophets in their places and understand to whom all of this is directed, their message is directed and why. And now this becomes really difficult with Obadiah and Joel because neither one of them give us any indication or give us much indication in their letters about the time that they're written in. But I think as you'll see, there's some indicators if you read it and you know the history of what's going on here that you can connect the two and you can go, there's a a really good chance that this is precisely about the time that both of them begin writing. So it's most likely at this point that Obadiah and Joel come onto the scene. Let me give you that, those blanks. Who are 
the earliest of the writing prophets, Obadiah is Obadiah, not Obed-iah. Uh, and Joel, um, they're the earliest of, we think, of the writing prophets. You're going to see sometimes people will put them a little bit later, and sometimes people will put them earlier. And I don't love the reasons why people put them later a lot of times. I think they're, they're probably really well suited right here, and I'll show you why. Um, obviously, not much is known about Obadiah, and nor does he mention anything really specific in his letter to really secure the dates. However, his message concerns the nation of Edom. And if you look on the back of your handout, uh, the very back, the timeline here, I've got a prophet... Um, and I've got the southern prophets over there, put Obadiah and Joel in there. And then in parentheses next to Obadiah, he, we think, is from the south. We think both Joel and Obadiah are from the south just because of the things that they say about the south and the concern that they have for the south. But um, they're, they're, uh, and Joel is prophesying to the south, but Obadiah is mostly prophesying to the nation of Edom. And so I've put that in parentheses to try to indicate that, but it's sometime right there in that 841 time frame, right about the time Jehoram is about to leave office and be killed with an intestine, intestinal disorder. And right about that time, it seems that Obadiah and Joel come onto the scene. So all of this is just before Jehoahaz takes the throne. All right. And, um, and so... He is prophesying to Edom because, why? Because Edom in their pride, they did not do something that they should have done. Look at Obadiah 3 to 4. It's just a one-chapter book. It's one of those one-chapter books. So Obadiah 3 to 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Listen to what they did in 10 to 14. And this is where I'm going to get to this next little slide here. Uh, is that right? Those will pray. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, in their boastful pride, which is described by the, the prophets, they do not uh, come to the aid of Israel. And what he describes here, what, what it seems like happened, remember, Edom has won their independence from Judah. And Judah comes down and makes war with, with Edom to try to get them back under their thumb, and they don't succeed. Now, what kind of disposition do you think that this would put Edom in towards Judah? One of bitter enemies, right? So he calls them out initially at the beginning of the letter because they have boastful pride. It happens that the kingdom of Edom sits on top of a high cliff overlooking the promised land, basically overlooking the Jordan Valley where the Jordan River is, right? And so he calls them out for that initially, but then he gets to the real uh, the meat of the letter where they did not offer assistance to Israel or to Judah when Judah was being sacked in Jerusalem. At least I think that's what he's talking about. Look at Obadiah 10 to 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now, who is, who is Edom, by the way? 
Where did the Edomites come from? Esau, right? And obviously, Israel comes from Jacob. And so it says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Do you see that? You see the, the historical connection that's being made here? Now, he doesn't make mention of any day. He doesn't make mention of any king that's on the throne or any king that was, was on the throne at the time of this battle. But he does give us some indication that there was a foreign army that came into Jerusalem, that sacked Jerusalem, and that carried off a lot of its possessions, including the royal family. And what did Edom do when they did that? Stood by and watched. Why? Because they tried to put us under the thumb. You think we're going to come in and help you when you tried to do battle with us? When you tried to put us under your thumb? No, 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 no. We're not going to come to your aid. You wanted us to be your servants. So Edom, according to Obadiah, stood aloof. And the Lord gives to Obadiah this message to go to Edom and say, because you didn't come to the aid of your brother Jacob, you're going to be judged too. I'm going to bring you down. Now, you would think that, oh, I would think that probably in our spiteful, mean ways that we can often, you know, have about us, that if somebody did that to us, we would probably do the same thing as Edom. And don't you think we would feel justified in doing that? I think so. We probably would justify ourselves in in doing that. But according to the Lord, he says, wait a second, you should always be with your brother. Why? Why do you think that is? Why should Edom have taken part with Jacob and defended Jacob? Because Jacob is the Lord's. So what does it say that Edom says, no, we're not going to do this. They don't believe the Lord. They don't want to follow after the Lord. They have no desire to put aside the bickering and actually do what is right. They have no desire to do that because they actually have no desire to follow after the Lord at all. So Jacob is hauled off or parts of Jacob are hauled off. And Obadiah is, the rest of his letter basically is condemning the nation of Edom because of what they have done. And they refuse not only to help Jacob, but also to submit to Yahweh. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So then we get to the prophecy of Joel. Now, um, remember we've talked about some of these things over the last uh, few weeks in Elisha's ministry, but the prophecy of Joel has within it a lot of plague and famine. And it's mainly what the prophecy of Joel is concerned with. Locusts coming in. And this is where things get, I think, a little bit interesting because this is also very difficult to nail down as far as what is uh, really going on here, what time frame this is in, but I think it fits really well here. Look at Joel 1, 2 to 20. We won't read all of this, but Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. 
Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of, because the, of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of, of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. What is he describing here? What does that sound like? It sounds like famine, right? It sounds like famine and a plague. So the famine is that all the grapes, all the vines, all the crops are going to be destroyed. And we also hear that there's locusts involved. Now, this is what makes the prophets really hard to read. Sometimes when he says locust, he means a bug that comes in in a swarm and devours the crops. And sometimes he means an army. And so what does he mean here? I think he actually means both. All right. (laughs) The answer is yes. Which one does he mean, an army or a plague of locusts? And I think he means both, which is why I think he starts talking about the hopping locust and the, and the destroying locust and all of that kind of stuff, which I think the destroying locust is an army that comes in at the very end. So he describes all their crops being desecrated and they're without, uh, with, they're without food. And yet, what is God going to do? He is going to have mercy on his people and divert the enemy host from bringing it to ruin. Look at... Uh, uh, Joel two twelve to 20. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your, for the, the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride, her chamber, between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous. Let's pause right there on verse 18, and and we'll uh, maybe come back to that in just a second. Now, why do we we put this right here in, or at least around this time frame? Well, because remember what Elisha, what just happened in chapter 8, at the very beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, what the people of Israel were in the middle of. They were in the middle of a seven-year famine, Right? So much so that two women approached the Lord, 
Oh, uh, well, there was a part where two women approached the, the king and asked for uh, her to, him to grant them to eat the other one's son. All right. A, a famine, a severe famine, a, a plague, essentially, where all the crops were destroyed. But then also we saw the, 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 Edomite, the, the, the Shunammite widow who lost her land in the process. She escaped the famine, which was in the south, and she went over to Philistia and came back and lost her land, right, that Elisha helped her get back. So there's this seven-year famine that happens right there at the end of Elijah's ministry, and we, we see that. Oh, wait, sorry, I didn't give you that blank. The seven-year famine that takes place right there at the end of Elisha's ministry. Um, between what we know is between 852 and 845. So we know within with reasonable certainty when that famine was, and it's right there at about that time because we're actually given king's names and things like that as far as where that rain is. All right. Now, the next part is not in the Bible, but it is part of history that we can kind of tie together, which makes this a really good place for the letter of Joel to arrive. All right. Which is... There's this little guy named Shalmaneser III. All right, Shalmaneser III is the king of Assyria. All right, who is Assyria? Remember Assyria? Assyria is out to the north and east, so due northeast from the land of Israel. And Shalmaneser III is a bad dude. He has been a thorn in the side of lots of people in this area for a long time. In fact, the last time we talked to him or talked about him was a couple of months ago. And in that, we, there was a battle that he came to, uh, to wage war against Hazael of Damascus. And he comes in to do battle with him and, um, and is, is at Karkar, which is a town near Damascus. And in 853, there's some sort of stalemate. Something happens. We don't know what it is. But something happens there in 853. And he turns around and goes home. He declares it a victory, but he certainly doesn't go any further. So you've got Damascus over here who did something to Assyria. They, they gathered a bunch of people and a bunch of other nations. They battled him at Karkar. He... Apparently got, it was at least a stalemate. He may have even gotten beat and turns around and goes home. And he stays silent for about 12 years. And then in 841, he comes moving back down this direction. And he's out on the horizon. And he comes in and besieges Hazael of Damascus in 841. And then he moves on from Damascus. So he's now avenged himself, I guess you would say, in Damascus. And then he moves on down into the northern kingdom where he encounters Jehu. Now look at your timeline. Remember your timeline. Jehu. There is an 841 where Jehu is on the throne, just barely. Jehu has just gotten on the throne, right? He's just taken over. He moves down into the northern kingdom and he actually gets tribute from Jehu. All right? And he battles, uh, uh, so he battles the northern kingdom there, and he doesn't even really have to battle him. Jehu comes out and bows down before him and gives him everything that he wants. It's at this time in Israel's history where the southern kingdom, so that's in the north, right? Cut off the line just above Jerusalem, all right? So he's in the north, he's doing this, Jehu is bowing down to him. At that time, Jehoram is still on the throne, but just barely. 
And what's happening during that period of time, or sometime around that period of time? Edom is rebelling against Judah. Philistines are attacking Judah, ransacking Jerusalem, hauling people off, getting Libna for themselves, all this kind of stuff. So Judah is in the midst of a battle where he faces enemies on both sides, east and west. And then to the north, we know Shalmaneser III is sitting there in the north getting tribute from the northern kingdom. What are the odds that maybe Shalmaneser III just ventures on south of the border and comes into the south and gets tribute from them? Well, of course he's going to move that direction. He's already gotten tribute from the north. Of course, it's reasonable to conclude that he moved his armies into the south. Except that he runs into the God of biblical history. Now, this is a picture. It's hard to see. It's hard to make out. This is actually, they call this a relief, which is basically a stone that has like a engravings on it or like carvings on it. And this relief has uh, Shalmaneser III right here. Okay. And this is called the Jehu relief. It's about seven feet tall. This is Jehu. Bowing down and paying tribute to Shalmaneser. Okay? This is discovered in Assyria. So we know that he got tribute from, from Jehu. This is not contested. And so he come, odds are... He is going to try to come down to the south if it's that easy to move through the north. The only reason he turned around in the past in, in 853 was because he got, it was at least a stalemate in Damascus. But now that he's conquered Damascus, he comes on down to the north. He gets tribute from Jehu. And odds are he probably comes down to the south as well. But he runs into the God of biblical history. Look at Second Chronicles 21.7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So the book of Joel fits really nicely in this little time frame. But one of the reasons that I think this is a a very interesting piece is that it is apparent in the prophecy of Joel that indeed the southern kingdom does repent. He even phrases it that way in verse 18 of Joel 2, which is right in the middle of that passage. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will, make no, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise there's a double meaning here. There's the locust, obviously, but I think he's also talking about Shalmaneser III, who's moving into the area, and he calls him the northerner. I'll make him leave. It's kind of a double meaning. At the end of Elisha's ministry, remember what we talked about just a couple of weeks ago? I think it was last week, where we said that, that there's the, the king, 
who seems sympathetic to Elisha's ministry. You find that in 2 Kings 8. He seems sympathetic now to Elisha's ministry, seems repentant and is tearing his clothes. Remember, it's told to us he's wearing the sackcloth under his clothes, which means he's in a state of mourning. He's in a state of repentance to the Lord. So here, Joel calls for repentance or you're going to be destroyed. And then in the midst of the book, we also see it seems that the southern kingdom does indeed repent and the Lord ends the suffering, which is right about the time when he actually does end it. Not only that, but he drives out the northerner, which would be the Assyrian army as they're moving in, who is stationed just to the north of the border. And so instead of actually sending Shalmaneser down to the, down to the south, he turns him around and heads him back to Assyria. Now, when have you ever heard of this? That's never happened. I would just venture to guess that will never happen again ever in history. Again, ever. Why would an army that was very powerful, that's moving through conquering everybody and sees just across the border, there's another kingdom that has riches and all kinds of things to plunder that is right now being plundered and is weak beyond repair and has just come out of a famine. Why would I not just go down there and take what I could have? The only solution, the only reason is because the God of history turns him around and sends him back home. Why? Because of repentance. Very obvious in the midst of the book of Joel, that's what's happening. And so for that reason and and many others, I think it seems fitting. But it's God's covenant. He's not going to break his covenant. He's going to maintain his word. He's going to keep his word for the sake of his name. James. Repentance is always appropriate and never goes uh, out as always. I don't, I, don't, I don't think people understand it or grasp it, just how, how important that is. Yeah, and the prophets, if nothing else, remind us that he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and what that means is that if his people repent, then he turns. I mean, now, for us, in the, in the church, obviously, we, we do have Christ as our substitute. There's no sense in which God is angry with those who are in Christ. That's been absorbed on the shoulders of Christ. But there are still disciplinary actions that he takes, right? That bring us to what? To a state of repentance. So, yeah. Questions? Go ahead. Uh, Shannon has a microphone right here, I think. I actually have a few questions. Okay. Um, so with Obadiah, why do we think that it happened during this time, not the Babylonian captivity? Yeah, um, that's a, it's a really good question. And um, mainly because this situation in history with Edom watching on as Jerusalem is sacked um, fits quite nicely. Most people do think that, that it's an earlier book um, because it doesn't reference any kings or any times in specifically. Um, there are, it's certainly an option that it could be a Babylonian invasion. Um, we're going to have a lot of prophets in the Babylonian invasions. And so I, I, 
I'm inclined to believe that this is probably the time that he's speaking about, but it's possible that it could be Babylon as well. And, and for that matter, Joel um, could be a number of different times. The, the, the plague and the famine, along with a, a coming and approaching king with Joel, kind of, that's a pretty rare event all in one. And so you, if you put that one in Babylon with the Babylonian invasion, then you would kind of be saying, uh, you know, well, we don't know about the plague and the famine, but we certainly know about Babylon, right? So, yeah, it's possible. Okay. Uh, the other question is, so with everything that happened with Jehoram, with his intestines and the invasion and all that, that was God's judgment on Judah, right? Yeah. So why then would God be upset at Edom for not intervening in his judgment? Yeah. Um, so there's several references to things like this. Um where God brings judgment on his nation and then judges the nations that judge them. So like Babylon comes in and he said, he tells, I think it's in Habakkuk. I'm pretty sure he tells Habakkuk, I'm going to bring in these ones to judge. And Habakkuk's like, have you seen the Chaldeans, the Babylonians? They're terrible. And he goes, Oh yeah, I'm going to judge them too. Cause they're going to take it too far and I'm going to judge them. And so, um, I, I think the, what God, you have to remember what, what God judges in throughout the old Testament and in the new. Um, and, and now even in our age is the heart. And so I, I, I think what you're looking at here is not, not merely the, the, what Edom did or didn't do, not only that, but it was the heart that produced that action. That that's what they didn't, they didn't have a heart for Jacob. They rejected them altogether. And that is what is what, what led to their actions, what led to their pride. And that's what he calls them out for at the beginning of the book is, well, it was your pride that you're, that's going to bring you down. And so, yeah. And then, okay, last question. Go ahead. Um, so the famine that you were talking about and you referenced in, in Second Kings with the Shunammite woman, didn't that take place in the north? And then are you just saying the famine was throughout the entire land, north and south? Yeah, okay. yeah, um, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, the famine that, that is referenced in Elisha is, it, well, it, what's honed in on is the north, but it seems to be across the entire land. Case in point, the, the Shunammite woman leaves the land altogether. She doesn't go down to the south. She goes, I think, to Philistia, if I remember right. And, um, and so that's the only way she can escape the famine. So we, we, we assume that that means that it was across the entire land. That's the only reason you would go to the Philistines. So, yeah, I may be misremembering that, but that's right. Yeah. I need a microphone back here. Can you pass it? <laughs> John Calvin said in the 1500s, God puts wicked rulers over wicked people to punish them yeah 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 it's a it's a judgment no doubt so what do we have yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well and it's doubly worse you know because we have we have uh and have had for some time um not only leader leaders that were infantile and uh wicked but by definition america is a ruled by its own people who are also 
Wicked. So there you go. Uh, you got it. You got it coming from both sides, you know? So I, I'm, I, I think too, and in, in just, yeah, I've said this for some time now, I think, but um, just even thinking about America, you, you, you have Isaiah, I think it's three, where he basically the judgment that he gives to uh, the land is that they will, they'll print, uh, infants will be their princes. And um, so basically meaning that not only will we be ruled by young people, but they'll make infantile decisions and be kind of infantile in their nature. And kind of got to trace the line back, back several presidents <laughs> where we've had, we've had these kinds of yeah, so. infantile decisions. Crazy. It's judgment for sure. Leadership is, is a judgment. Other questions? But in the midst of that, they repented. It does seem that way. I mean, that's, that's the way I think you have to read Joel is um, he's prophesying that this, will ha- that this is going to happen. The Lord does this. So possible that Joel took years to write, not just a one, one event. But yeah, when it comes to some of these prophets, they're hard to date sometimes. So um, we're going to put them as best we can in certain categories, knowing that, and I've got that indicated on your thing there. I try to put an asterisk next to the ones that, you know, they don't really have any kings mentioned. So we're just going to make a, our best guess, try to fit it into the context as best we can and, and move on. Uh, some of them will be very specific, you know, so. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to gather together and just to study your word. And, and I, I'm grateful for an opportunity to just um, look at, examine, um, scrutinize even the Bible's message and see that indeed it does hold water and that it, it aligns with what we even know of history and of what took place. What a great encouragement that is. What, what also a great encouragement it is to see that you are slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, that you're faithful to your word, that we can trust it. And if nothing else, I pray that what we walk away with is a clear and resounding testimony, your goodness to your people. And we have benefited greatly from your goodness to us in Christ. And we can trust that your word to rescue us from exile will remain true, that you will fulfill that promise. And so we wait and pray, come Lord Jesus. In the midst of all of this that's going on in our nation and with people, uh, with wickedness all around, I think we can all agree that we anticipate, we long for the day the Lord returns. And we pray that that day would be hastened in Jesus' name. Amen.